History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 360th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be doing a location suggested by our listener, John Venezia. It's a location I actually know pretty well. It comes out of my home state of Colorado, Cripple Creek. Excellent. I remember as a kid that we went down into the Molly Kathleen mine. I think it was the first time I ever was in a mine, and it was just so cool. And that didn't get you claustrophobic at all? I don't remember being claustrophobic. I usually don't get too claustrophobic. That's good. I got a little nervous when I went down into caves before. Well, I was a kid, so I don't know that I had enough sense to know that's that true. I was in danger, possibly. <laughs> that's true. When you're a child, it's a little bit different. There are a ton of haunted locations in Cripple Creek, and we're going to bring a lot of those to you guys. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Carrie with a K and an I, Charlotte, Casey with a K, Macy, the podcast What Goes Bump in the Night, Shelly with an S, Metty, I hope that's how you say your name, M-E-T-T-E, Michelle with two L's, Jason, Lynette, Judy, Avi, and Carolyn. Thanks for joining us in the crew. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in oddity was suggested by Scott Booker. We've all heard of cockfighting, bullfighting, dogfights, and other such animal cruelty for sport. But there is a form of animal or, well, bug fighting in which animals don't get hurt. Cricket fighting. This started more than 1,000 years ago under the Tang Dynasty, but soon moved down to the commoners, which caused the Chinese communist government to ban cricket fighting in the 1960s. But young people have been bringing it back. Only male crickets are fought against each other. These crickets have pedigrees and specialized diet incorporating red beans, goat liver, shrimp, and, um, maggots. The night before a fight, female crickets are dropped into the clay pots that hold the crickets to invigorate their spirit. The crickets fight according to weight classes. A cricket loses when it stops chirping or runs away or is thrown from the fighting container. Some crickets are so prized that they become famous and have elaborate funerals when they pass and are buried in carved coffins. The sport is so popular that in 2010, $63 million in American dollars was spent on crickets. The sport of cricket fighting certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? <laughs> That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of November, on the 18th in 1803, Haiti won its independence. The Haitian Revolution had started in 1791 as an attempt to break free from French rule. As is the case for all revolutions, there were many reasons that this rebellion erupted. Steep tariffs caused planters to look to independence, as did the fact that they had no representation in France. Sound familiar? At the same time, the slave population was planning another uprising, so they were the first to strike with a fight against the planters. The French tried to squelch things, but they lost traction and the British came to help. The slaves were able to push back against both. The final major battle of the war was the Battle of Vetières. The French had been so decimated that they had only 2,000 men to face 27,000 Haitians. The French army had 1,200 casualties from that conflict, and they decided they were done and left the island. 
Historians say that the man who led the fight and became the first emperor of Haiti, the Salines, had accomplished something not even Spartacus could, and that was a successful slave uprising. One of the things that helped the Haitians with their victory were mosquitoes. They helped spread yellow fever to the French troops and about 20,000 of them died. Haiti would get its name at this time, and it emerged as the first black republic in the world. This episode has it all. Cripple Creek is a spooky old mining town with a ton of history and many haunts, leading it to be thought of as the most haunted Colorado mining town. We have haunted hospitals, hotels, jails, schools, brothels, saloons, and even Nikola Tesla. And I just love him. So it was so cool to (laughs) be able to share that he actually stayed in Cripple Creek for a little bit of his life. Definitely. Diane grew up visiting this mountain town long before it became a haven for gambling. Cripple Creek is on the south side of Pikes Peak and was once considered the greatest gold camp on earth. Many people would find their fortune here, but some would find tragedy and death. There was a murder nearly every day. Violence, mining accidents, and natural disasters plagued the town. And that may be why spirits plague the town now. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Cripple Creek. Cripple Creek got its start in 1891 when gold was discovered by a cowboy named Bob Womack. This was in an area where the Ute tribe had lived called Poverty Gulch. Eventually, homesteaders moved in with their livestock, but when gold was found, this peaceful area went crazy. Two men named Horace Bennett and Julius Myers bought land in the area and platted a town they called Fremont. This would eventually be called Cripple Creek, which got its name from a frightened calf that jumped over a fence, landed in a gully, and broke its leg. Can you imagine naming a town after that? Poor little cow. And who came up with that idea? I mean, really? Hey, that little calf just broke its leg. You know, I think that'd be a great name for a (laughs) creek and then eventually a town. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's a little bit odd. (laughs) The hotels were filled up quickly and they even started setting up chairs and renting them for the night for $1. Lots that used to cost 50 bucks soon were selling for $5,000. By 1892, the population had risen to 5,000 people. The town was built from wood, which would prove to be a bad idea when fire broke out in April of 1896. This fire started at the Central Dance Hall when a bartender and his girlfriend got into a fight and knocked over a coal stove. As they do. Mm-hmm. Knock down drag out, apparently. <laughs> and they're going to burn down half the town. Isn't Holy. that great? The fire burned down the south side of Bennett Avenue and took out three parlor houses, or brothels, the opera house, a big chunk of the business district, and the Topic Hotel. Another fire broke out later that week and burned up many residences. It was decided to rebuild everything in brick. The early 1900s would bring mine disputes, and some ended in death, one in which 13 miners were killed in an explosion. One of the largest gold mines in the country, the Portland, was here, and it mined out $62 million in gold. By the time the mines had been run out, more than 22,400,000 ounces of gold was extracted from more than 500 mines in the Cripple Creek and Victor region. Interestingly, the former Crescent Mine was reopened in 1995 and produces annually over 250,000 ounces of gold and is the largest mining operation in the continental United States. Before this, Cripple Creek had really dwindled, but 1991 brought legalized gambling and reinvigorated the town. Many of the original buildings still stand today. Let's look at some of these locations that are reputedly haunted. The Colorado Trading and Transfer Building is today part of the Cripple Creek District Museum. You'll start getting a feel here that these old buildings have either transformed to casinos or museums. It seems like most of them, they're one or the other today. 
This is one of the oldest buildings in Cripple Creek because it survived the fires, even though it was built from wood. The museum features mining artifacts, mineral displays, western firearms, maps of the mines, and rare photos. Originally, this building was erected by Albert Carlton and his brother Leslie in 1893. They used this to run their business of moving freight that included gold, and they also sold coal and wood. The brothers eventually sold the building to the Midland Terminal Railroad in 1899. Blevins Davis, Richard Wayne Johnson, and Margaret Giddings founded the museum in 1953, and it not only includes this building, but also an assay office, a one-room home owned by French Blanche LaCroix, a lady of the evening, a miner's cabin, and the Midland Terminal Depot. There have been a few experiences in this location. A man standing in the gift shop watched a book fly off of a shelf all on its own. Linda Womack wrote, Haunted Cripple Creek and Teller County, and she shared an experience she had at the museum. My mother and I were taking a quick tour of the museum grounds after having spent several hours doing research in an upstairs room in the depot building of the museum. While we were inside the building, I walked towards a bookshelf that held extremely old books. Just as I knelt to read the volume titles, I instantly became chilled. I looked around for some sort of explanation. She experienced it again several years later while there with a friend, and this person felt the same icy chill. Many people have claimed to experience this same phenomenon. Another weird thing is that strange stains and markings on the wall will bleed through any time the walls are painted. No one knows what these spots are from. Could be something natural. Yeah, Kelly, I used to live in an old apartment. It was up above a dance studio, and every so often the walls would bleed this brown stuff down from the top. It would just come through and I'd clean off the wall and then it would come again. The toilets were situated above? No, no, there was (laughs) nothing. We were the top floor. So I was like, I had no idea where it was coming from. I don't know if it was the wood or something behind it. Yeah, water leakage maybe. It's just weird because it would almost be like it was something saturating through the walls. It would just look like somebody had thrown, you know, like a brown liquid up on the wall. Ew. Yeah, it was pretty disgusting. That's why I only live in new from now on. The Midland Terminal Depot is today also part of the Cripple Creek District Museum, as you guys heard earlier. This train depot operated from 1895 to 1949 and received an average of 10 passenger trains daily. That's a lot of railroads coming through. It is. The rail line was started in 1895 after several mine owners decided they needed to bring down the cost of shipping their ore to smelters. So I don't know how they did it originally. I'm thinking horse and... Horse and wagon, probably. Harry Colbrand was the general manager of the Colorado Midland Railroad Depot at Hayden Divide, and he was the one to go out and seek financial backing for the rail line, and he found it with millionaire Harlan Lillybridge, who gave him $100,000. That money ran out before the line was finished, and Colbrand brought on another man named W.G. Gillette, and they got more funding. They also decided that their initial idea of building this as a narrow gauge was not a good idea, and they ripped up the line and replaced it with a standard gauge. They were able to expand as well when the Carlton brothers offered up land next to their building and the depot was built there. It had three floors and still does today. The top floor was used for offices. The second floor was for passengers and they had separate rooms for men and then women and children. And the bottom floor was for loading and unloading freight. Passengers paid $2 for a round trip ticket. Some trains even offered Pullman service. So you could sleep with the coal. Great. (laughs) Great. Or the gold. I guess I wouldn't mind sleeping around gold. Employees and visitors both have reported strange things. Much of the activity centers around the spirit of a young girl wearing a white dress who has been seen playing on the third floor. Her voice has also been captured on EVP by paranormal investigators. People also claim to catch the scent of cigar smoke in the air. One of the teams who has investigated here is Mountain Peak Paranormal Investigations, and one time they heard a music box on the mantle starting to play on its own. They set up a recorder to capture the sound and also took a picture. Later, they reported the experience to staff who were perplexed. They said that the museum did have a music box, but that it was not in that room. When the investigators played the recording, the staff claimed that the song playing was not the song that the music box played. Everyone went to the room and there was no music box in there. And even weirder, when the film was developed, there was no music box in any picture. That has to be one of the strangest stories I've heard. It's amazing some of this stuff out there. So what you have is multiple people who see this music box on the mantle, which makes me wonder, was it a ghostly music box that just appeared? I don't know. It's very strange. Or did the spirits bring the music box that was in another room over to this mantle and put it up there? But then how is it playing a song that isn't even on that music box? Right. Just bizarre. And then they took pictures of it 
and it doesn't show up in the pictures, which again, if it was a ghostly music box, maybe that's why. I don't know. So we'll have to take their word for it. But man, that is amazing. Car Manor is a boutique hotel and bed and breakfast that had once been the town's high school. Can you imagine turning a high school into a bed and breakfast? (laughs) No, certainly not. (laughs) At the height of its mining success, Cripple Creek and the surrounding mining district had 17 schools. The former Cripple Creek High School is one of the only two original schools still standing. Construction was finished on the first phase of the school in 1896, and the second was completed in 1905 in the Romanesque style. The parking lot had once been a pool that was added in the 1940s. The school closed in 1977. Ted Heiliger and his family bought the school in 1982 and converted it into a hotel that opened in 1983. They ran it for 20 years and then sold it to Gary and Winnie Ledford. They restored the hotel and expanded it so that it now has 14 rooms and suites, a grand ballroom, and a conference center. There was a Carr Avenue, two Carr families that had lived in town, and one of the governors of Colorado was named Ralph Carr, whom had graduated from this school. So they named the hotel Carr Manor, and that's spelled C-A-R-R, for those of you who are wondering. The lobby is glorious with a wood-burning stove, exposed brick, antiques, and statuary of children. There are not many paranormal experiences described in regards to this place, but guests claim to see weird orb anomalies and strange lights, particularly on the second floor landing, and they feel as though they are being watched and like there's a presence that they cannot see. So if any of you make it to this mountain town and stay at Car Manor, do some investigating and let us know. Take a lot of photos. Yeah. (laughs) And now we have the Gold Mining Stock Exchange Building, which was built in 1896 from red sandstone following the fires. The exchange ran from 1896 until December 1909, when the Cripple Creek Stock Exchange was combined with the Colorado Springs Stock Exchange and moved down to Colorado Springs. The vacant building was bought by the Elks, who had been meeting up on the top floor of another building in town. They remain in the building to this day. When this was first opened, it was considered one of the most elegant lodges around with oriental rugs, call buttons for staff, velvet draperies, polished hardwood floors, electric lights and lamps, and hot and cold running water. There was also a bar, a banquet hall, a room for cards and billiards, a cigar and brandy room, and a reading room. The Newport Saloon that had once been on the first floor was a scene of the murder of Sam Strong in 1901. The former Newport Saloon is the scene of most of the paranormal activity in the building. Objects fly around the room and orbs have been witnessed. Objects are seen and then disappear. The lodges hosted ghost tours and people on these tours have claimed to see shadowy figures in doorways. People claim a man has been seen walking through walls and a female spirit is heard laughing in the lounge. Johnny Nolan's Saloon and Gambling Emporium is the oldest bar in Cripple Creek. The place is named for Johnny Nolan, who had relocated here from St. Louis, Missouri. He opened his first saloon in 1890, and like many of these buildings, it burned in the fire. Nolan partnered with Jacob Becker, and they rebuilt a two-story building on the same spot. Johnny's saloon and gambling place was on one side of the first floor. The Cripple Creek Bank was on the other half. Nolan had an office on the second floor as well. In 1903, Nolan moved to Nevada, and Becker took over operations. Not much is known about the history from that point until gambling came to town. When that happened, Nolan's reopened. The main spirits in this location seem to belong to children. They run up and down the halls. Little boy has been seen holding a red balloon. I'm thinking, Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this is like it. Hello. We don't want children standing around ghostly with red balloons. Especially not if they're wearing a yellow slicker. Yeah. (laughs) We all float down here. Little girl spirits have been seen wearing Victorian dresses and standing near the stairway. Mousy wrote on the Legends of America website in 2011, I just started working at Johnny Nolan's in the restaurant. One night when I was closing up, I saw a little girl with a blue dress and white buckled up shoes just standing by my supervisor's office holding a stuffed animal of some kind. I believe it was a bunny or something like that. It was really old and cheap looking. I asked her what she was doing over here since it was apart from the main floor where guests would normally be. She said she was looking for her daddy. I thought maybe the supervisor was her dad. I didn't know. I put my hand out and asked her to come with me and I'd help her find him. She just looked at me and said she couldn't leave or she'd get into trouble. At that time, my supervisor was walking up behind me, so I turned around and asked if this was his daughter. He looked at me and laughed. I didn't get what he was laughing at until I turned back to the girl that wasn't there anymore. My supervisor asked if I was okay. I started rambling confusingly about what had just happened, and he asked me if I wanted to hear a story. He then told me about a man that had owned the building back in the early days. He'd lost his wife to some disease and was very protective of his daughter. He'd go to work every day and leave his daughter home alone. Well, if he was really protective of her, why would he do that? I mean... 
He had told the girl that it was very dangerous to go outside without her father and that the only way she'd be safe was to stay inside and play with her toys until he came home. Well, she did that every day of her life. Then one day there was a couple that lived in the same building that got into a huge argument and somehow a lamp got knocked over. The lamp broke and started a fire. The whole building went up in flames. The little girl never made it out because she was told the only way she would ever be safe was to stay inside until her father came home. To this day, she's never left. That was the one and only time I'd ever seen her while working there. Oh, very sad. Yeah, so interesting story. The Turf Club was a place started by William Bonbright and was set up as a club for the wealthy businessmen of Cripple Creek. The first floor had rooms for meetings and billiards, while the second floor had smaller meeting rooms and rooms for rent. The building was completed in 1896 and was done in the Italianate architectural style. This had a rounded edge design and was the first in town to use brown brick to accent the center window, which would be duplicated in other buildings. In 1897, the club was bought by John Harnon, who had just become New Money. He ran the club successfully until 1909. And then we don't know much else about the history other than it mostly sat vacant until legalized gambling. And then the building got a refurb and is today Buffalo Billy's Casino. I'm sure that's named for Buffalo Bill. You would imagine. (laughs) You know, I wasn't real happy when I first heard that they were bringing legalized gambling to all these mountain towns because you just thought it was going to mess them up, destroy them. Go downhill. But then when you start looking at how it basically saved all these buildings from being destroyed. Definitely. Kind of a good thing. So I am glad that that happened. And I did have a lot of fun going down there and gambling every so often. It brought back tourism. Yes, it did. (laughs) And Kelly, I'm sure you know what new money is, correct? You mean the definition? Yeah. Certainly. So for those people who don't know, new money back in, especially the Victorian times and such, was meant for people who didn't have money through their entire family for years and years, decades and decades. These were people who kind of made it on their own. Molly Brown was considered new money. Right. And they were, despite the fact that they were wealthy people, looked down upon for that fact. It's like, well... They're as wealthy as you are. What does it matter if they've had the money for a century or just got it a few months ago? Yeah. We don't know of any deaths at the Turf Club, but one thing seems to be pretty certain to people who've had weird things happen to them in this building. The ghost of a little girl haunts the place. They call her Lily because an employee claimed to have a conversation with her and told this woman that Lily was her name. She appears about the age of six years old, carries a rag doll, and is very friendly. An employee who saw her asked if she was lost, and she said, no, I'm not lost. I live here. Clearly, this was not a home, so he went to get a security guard, and when they returned, Lily had disappeared. People will leave balloons for Lily, and if it's purple, they'll see it float around the casino. If the balloon is blue, she will pop it. She has a favorite color, apparently, and I would say it's purple. Lily has been seen peering from an upstairs window. She occasionally leaves her handiwork on the walls with pens and crayons, as I'm sure all of you mothers know exactly what that is and how much fun that is to clean up. The drawings sometimes reappear after being washed off the walls. How about if that happened in your home? A tourist sitting at a slot machine lost track of her daughter, as one does when gambling, and she later found her perched on the staircase appearing as though she were talking to someone. She asked her daughter what she was doing, and she said she was playing with Lily. Her daughter was sitting alone on the stairs. The Imperial Hotel is today the Christmas Casino and Inn at Bronco Billy's. This is the oldest hotel in the city. The three-story building was constructed from red brick and completed in 1896. A widow named E.F. Collins leased the building and opened the Collins Hotel. She ran that until 1906, and then a Mrs. M.E. Shute bought the hotel and the building next to it, remodeled, connected the buildings, and opened the new Collins Hotel. This place boasted innovations like steam heat, electric lights, and porcelain bathrooms. It was a grand hotel, but not very successful, and she went into foreclosure. The owner of the note moved to Cripple Creek with his wife, and they ran the hotel for nearly 40 years. These were the Longs, and George Long received a stipend from the British Crown. So he had some money to burn, and he poured it into the building, turning it into a Victorian hotel he called the Imperial Hotel. After 30 years of running the hotel, George fell down the basement stairs to his death. His wife continued running the hotel for four years, but she finally gave up in 1944 and padlocked the doors. Perhaps she was uncomfortable with the rumors that her husband haunted the place. People claimed to see a male spirit in the windows. People suspected that George had actually been killed by his daughter Alice, but it was never proven. Could that be why he roams the stairs and basement? Alice is said to haunt the place because she was often locked away in a room because she had mental challenges. Wayne and Dorothy Mackin bought the building in 1946, refurbished and reopened the hotel. The hotel hosted a melodrama group out of Idaho Springs, dubbed the Imperial Players, who performed in the hotel's Gold Bar Theater. 
They've performed for over 50 years. They also opened a restaurant and bar called Red Rooster Room. This area had been Alice's room, and staff claimed to hear weird noises, especially scratching. You know, like when she was locked in a room, scratching on the door. Yeah. Once gambling was legalized, limited steak tables were added, and the name was changed to Imperial Casino Hotel. George likes to play with the slot machines and flirt with women. A chambermaid claimed that her bottom was pinched by someone she could not see. Security guards hear the sound of the machines paying out when the place is closed. No malfunctions were ever discovered. The Gold Bar Theater is said to be haunted by former performers, too. The Palace Hotel started as the Palace Drug Store, but it was renovated into a hotel in 1892. This burned in the fires, and Sam Altman, who owned it, rebuilt with brick. He decided to go with lavish, and it was more successful than its first run. We've read a couple of things about the hotel. One seems to indicate that the hotel was on the upper two floors, while the bottom level had a pharmacy and soda fountain. This was owned by Dr. William Chambers and his wife, Kitty. Another version that we read said that the doctor and his wife took ownership of the hotel after the turn of the century. We're not sure which is true, but the key to remember is that Chambers had a wife named Kitty. She left Cripple Creek in 1903 and sold her interest in the pharmacy to the doctor. The doctor himself left in 1910, so I'm assuming there was a split in their marriage? Shortly thereafter, the hotel burned to the ground. Other stories on the internet claim that Kitty died in the hotel in 1908, which is impossible since she was not there. So I don't know if they just haven't done their historical research or what, but, you know, these rumors and legends get passed around. Mary Hedges took over ownership of the hotel until 1918. We're not sure what happened after that, but in 1976, Robert and Martha Lays bought the hotel and they eventually passed it on to their sons. When gambling was legalized, the hotel became a casino that eventually went bankrupt in 2001. It reopened under the Century Casino Corporation, but this also bankrupted in 2003. There have been efforts to renovate, but as far as we know, it's still vacant. So again, if anybody's been to Cripple Creek recently, would love to know, is the Palace Hotel sitting vacant? Have they turned it into another casino? There were stories that Kitty haunted room three, but since she didn't die here, that probably is not true. Ms. Hedges lived in that room but she also didn't die here. Whomever it is, she is a hospitable host who would turn down beds and light candles in rooms, at least while the hotel was open. The Lays reported table candles relighting themselves when the hotel closed for the night. There are other spirits here too. People claim that there is a blind piano player, a short fat man, and a tall woman. Some people claim to be pushed when on the stairs. Strange anomalies appear in photographs and crashing sounds are heard when no one is in the area where the noises come from. The History Channel featured this location, and a paranormal group captured EVPs. This mousey that we heard from not too long ago also wrote on the Legends of America website, My first experience happened at the Palace Hotel. The women's restroom is where I saw my first ghost. I would always get a weird feeling when I went in there and never went in alone. On one occasion, while my sister and I were in there, I was washing my hands when I saw in the mirror behind me a woman sitting in the old antique full-back chair that sat in the corner of the restroom. She had on an old-style black-and-green full-length dress and had her hair done up on top of her head. I knew instantly that this was Miss Kitty that I'd heard about from stories. I was standing there frozen when I heard my sister calling my name and realized the woman was gone. Probably one of the coolest-looking buildings in Cripple Creek is the Teller County Jail, which still has bars on the windows. It was built in a T-shape out of brick and rises two stories. Today, this is the Outlaws and Lawman Jail Museum. This jail had a long run, opening in 1901 and closing in 1991. The reason for it finally closing is that the requirements for a modern jail were not met here, including no exercise yard. The receiving area and office was built from wood and serves as a gift shop today. Both men and women were housed here, and there was a female jailer to oversee the women. She had a room on the second floor. The women's cells are on this level, too. The cell system was set up in the middle of the building with upper and lower steel 14-cell units stacked on top of each other. This was state-of-the-art at the time. The building was very secure with jailbreaks a rarity. Each cell held four to six men, a bed, and a heater. Prisoners were issued a standard uniform that was white and black striped. The jail once held a member of Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch and a man named J. Grant Crumley who blew off half of Sam Strong's head, who was a wealthy mine owner. And you might recall we mentioned not too long ago that the Sam Strong was murdered in the Newport Saloon. So this is the guy who killed him. There were two deaths in the jail. One was a prisoner who fell over the railing of the catwalk at the top of the steel stairway on the second level. No one knows if it was an accident, a suicide, or a murder. This person's spirit may still be here at the jail. 
Heavy breathing is heard in the spot where this prisoner fell. All different types were thrown into this jail from criminals, people who needed to sleep off a drunk, and the criminally insane waiting to be moved to another facility. This is where the second death comes in. A woman named Olga Knutson was placed in a cell in a straitjacket. She screamed all night, but at some point she went quiet. And when the matron checked on her in the morning, she was dead. Nobody knows what happened, how that happened. There are spirits of former jailers who seem to think they are still on duty. They present themselves through disembodied footsteps and dark, shadowy masses. These, of course, could be former prisoners, too. These figures are most often seen in the last two cells of the first floor cell block. For some reason, the spirit of a little girl has been seen in the jail. People think this could be because she died while one of her parents was in the jail, and she's looking for that parent. It's amazing how many children's ghosts we have in this episode. Yeah, definitely. A docent at the museum claimed that she was getting ready to lock up for the day when she saw a man's face looking through a window at her. She opened the door to talk to him, but he had disappeared. She described the man to a co-worker, and he said it matched the former night jailer. Employees also tell a story about a main security door that is between the gift shop and the jail, which has flown open all on its own a few times. A spirit identifying herself as Rosie has been encountered in the female jailer's room, and she claims to still be watching over her prisoners. Michelle Rosel was a paranormal investigator and director of the museum, and she told the Ghost Adventures crew that they think a spirit named Joe hangs out in solitary confinement and that he had been a child molester. He threw two of her team members against the wall. Her team also heard an audible voice say something like, Get me out. This was also caught on a recorder. The Ghost Adventures crew picked up a figure on the SLS camera that they asked to wave, and it did. That was it for their evidence there. So Zach said that they could not conclude that the jail is haunted. I found that really interesting because there's a lot of stories coming out of this jail, but when Ghost Adventures went there, they really didn't catch anything. So that kind of looks good for them, since usually you're going to want to catch all kinds of activity. This is true, since they're usually very dramatic. The old homestead parlor is on Myers Avenue, which was Cripple Creek's red light district. And as you will recall, the parlor was actually a brothel. I guess they just decided to have that nicer name here in Cripple Creek. (laughs) A little bit more upper scale. I guess. Pearl DeVere was the madam who ran this brothel. She was 31 and ran her place as a high-class establishment with ladies who wore fine clothing. And that was because Pearl paid them very well. She was described as a fun woman with a kind heart who regularly rode side saddle down the street on her horse, or sometimes she was on her single-seated phaeton driven by a team of black horses. I bet that looked grand. The fires of 1896 burned down her first parlor and she rebuilt in brick. Today, this is the only parlor that still remains. It had been decorated with expensive European furnishings, velvet drapes, lace curtains, crystal gaslights, electric chandeliers, hand-painted French wallpaper, and hardwood tables. There was running water and two bathrooms. Clients needed references to even get inside the door, Kelly. Wow. Pearl would not enjoy her success for long. She hosted a grand party on June 4th, 1897, and was so amped before going to bed that she needed a little something to help her to sleep. So, unfortunately, she took some morphine. And it was a little too much. One of her girls found her unresponsive and breathing very shallowly and called the doctor. He tried to help her, but it was too late. She was declared dead the following morning. Pearl's family was ashamed to find out about her profession, and they would not bury her. So Johnny Nolan held an auction to raise money for the funeral. She was buried with a bunch of pomp and circumstance with the fire department band leading the procession. And I'm sure a lot of those boys had her to thank for a good time. (laughs) Oh my... (laughs) Her former brothel is now a museum, only one of three in the country. And I was trying to think, we've done the Dumas brothel, which is a museum now. So I'm thinking that's one of them. And then I think the other one is the one that we're hoping to visit in Alaska when we go on our cruise. Oh, the Red Onion? Yeah. Interesting. Because it didn't name the three, but off the top of my head, that's what I'm thinking. So Could be. Pretty cool. Many of the fixtures and wallpaper are original. Pearl still seems to be at the place she built, and people claim she's heard crying. The chandeliers sway when no wind is blowing in the house. Objects move and sometimes even disappear for days. Hotel St. Nicholas was the St. Nicholas Hospital, which opened in 1898 under the Sisters of Mercy. This not only served as a hospital, but the nuns lived there and a small school ran out of it. A ward for the mentally ill was added later. The hospital closed in the mid-1970s and sat vacant for several years. Then some business owners tried opening up businesses inside, but nothing seemed to stick. Then Noel and Denise Perrin and Susan Adelbush bought the property and refurbished it into an inn that they named for the former hospital. There are 15 guest rooms and great views of Cripple Creek as it sits atop a hill. There's a bar and restaurant called Boiler Room Tavern, which serves Mexican food and drinks, 
while live music plays. The hotel is said to be haunted by the former nuns and the children who used to be here, and, of course, some of the patients. A spirit nicknamed Stinky... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he just took me for a sec. Can you imagine being called that for the rest of eternity? No. <laughs> a spirit nicknamed Stinky is seen lurking near a back staircase, and he got his nickname because he gives off a raw sewage smell. I guess that's why you'd call him Stinky. Yeah, you'd say so. The lower part of a miner's body is seen as a ghost, too. That always creeps me out yeah. when you only hear about partial ghosts like that. Yeah. A little boy spirit named Petey likes to steal cigarettes and move objects in the tavern. Fairly Brothers and Lampman Building is today the Colorado Grand Casino and Hotel, and it's one of the locations that was also investigated by Ghost Adventures. So they did this one and the jail when they were there. And then I think when I saw parts of that episode, they did like a local home, too. They went into somebody's more current modern day home. The building once housed the town's mortuary. So it is no wonder that people claim there's paranormal stuff going on inside. There's also a restaurant called Maggie's Restaurant. The Fairley brothers were CW and DB, and they opened a furniture store at 300 East Bennett Avenue in 1894. The Lampman part of this name came in after the fire that burned part of the city. The Fairley brothers were nearly ruined because, of course, their building burned down. So they asked Oscar Lampman to partner with them. Lampman was an undertaker, and the three men built a three-story brick building that covered the block. The brothers reopened their furniture store. Lampman had his mortuary and several other businesses moved in, like a millinery, a lawyer, and a drugstore. The Elks opened a lodge on the third floor. In the 1960s, the first floor was remodeled and turned into an ice cream parlor called Sarsaparilla Saloon. I like Sarsaparilla. How about you? It's pretty good. The owners of the ice cream parlor were the first ones to claim that there were ghosts in the building. They would hear footsteps at night coming from the upper floors. This could be residual as a ballroom was eventually built on the third floor. The Spanish flu swept through Cripple Creek in 1918, and bodies were stacked up inside and out of the mortuary. Possibly some spirits go back to this moment in history. There are some other people who had been at the mortuary that could be haunting the place. Pearl DeVere, who was the madam at the old homestead parlor, lied in state for a couple of days before her funeral because she had been so beloved. There was also a rich mine owner named Sam Strong who had half his head blown off, which we discussed earlier, yep. while he sat at the saloon drinking, who was brought to the mortuary. The owners of the ice cream parlor decided to have a seance to find out who was haunting their building. Not a good idea. <laughs> Just call on them. They saw a group of men sitting in a corner in dark suits. They also saw the apparition of a woman who claimed to be named Maggie. Maggie usually appears on the top two floors of the casino. She looks to be about 25 years old, wearing high-heeled shoes and a dress from the turn of the century. She leaves the scent of rose perfume in her wake. And isn't it interesting? When you smell smoke, it's like cherry pipe smoke. And when you smell a woman, it's rose. And that would give me a screaming headache. I know. Must have been <laughs> I a very can't handle it. Must have been a very popular perfume at the time. Maggie has an Irish accent and is heard singing with a soprano voice. She often dances as well, and it's possible the disembodied footsteps are from her high-heeled boots. One of the owners of the ice cream parlor saw Maggie wearing clothes that she described as something a Gibson girl would wear. So now you guys can kind of envision that. She stood on a stairway above her, and there was a strong scent of roses. An artist named Charles Frizzle rented the third floor, and he said, After a long day in the studio, I'd climb the wide staircase to the third floor. The double doors would almost always be open, even though I'd lock them every morning. So my friend Jerry Hollings and I would lock the doors each morning and then fasten a wire coat hanger around the doorknobs. Still, the doors would be wide open when we arrived back on the third floor. The security cameras at the casino have caught what looks like ghostly images, and security guards claim to have seen the apparition of Maggie, sometimes even accompanied by a male spirit, after hours. And that is why the restaurant here is named in honor of Maggie. The Tesla Brownstone is a legit haunted house in the city. We call it by that name because we don't know what else to call it, and Nikola Tesla once lived here. The home is located at 315 Carr Street. The house was built in 1898 by an accountant from New York looking to work for some of the rich mine owners. It is pretty obvious that this was a home designed by a New Yorker because this two-story brownstone would fit right in in Greenwich Village. Since we got to see all those houses sitting there on the road, I just totally could envision what it would have looked like. Definitely. Eventually, the mine started to dry up and the accountant rented out the home to none other than Nikola Tesla, who it is said worked on some of his experiments in the home. He was a century ahead of his time, and his research still fuels scientific projects today. Tesla had a lab in nearby Colorado Springs. 
While Tesla was in Colorado Springs, he experimented with the production of man-made lightning bolts and conducted electricity using the Earth itself. And I believe when it comes to Tesla, there's only a couple of actual photographs out there of him. And a lot of you have probably seen the one where he's sitting in a chair and there's the electric bolts that are going above his head. I'm pretty sure that that was taken at this lab. Very cool. In 1907, the house seems to have been operated as a bordello. It changed ownership several times and then was purchased in 1968 by historian Leland Feitz. He fixed up the place and lived in it as his home. In 1978, he met author and famed astrologist Linda Goodman, whom he invited to move into Cripple Creek and live in the house. She visited and loved the solitude the mountains brought versus her busy New York life. She bought what she called her crooked little house on a crooked little street, which had been Feitz's brownstone. Goodman lived here until her death in 1996. The house was bought by Rick and Janice Wood, and they turned it into a bed and breakfast, connecting it to the boarding house that was next door with a walkway. They sold it to Jason and Sophia Ballas in 2013, and the home was sold again in 2017, and we believe it is a private residence now. There are some who claim this house is haunted and others who've experienced nothing here, so we don't know for sure what's going on. When Linda Goodman lived in the house, she claimed to have several odd things happen, like big things. Music would be heard in the air of every room when no radios or other music players were going, and it was an older variety of music. She also heard disembodied voices, and she saw apparitions in Victorian clothing. Some claim she was an eccentric woman who practiced a weird cosmic religion, and this is why she'd had these experiences. But friends who visited also claimed to hear voices and even the cries of a baby. People on the street would see lights flickering in the windows. There are people who believe that Goodman herself haunts her former home, objects move on their own, cold spots are felt, and a child's ghost is seen in the early morning hours. On the website Legends of America, Mike Warden wrote in 2006, This encounter occurred during the summer of 1973 in Cripple Creek, Colorado. My father had fallen in love with the town and consequently moved all six of us kids, lock, stock, and barrel, to the high country of Colorado. We found a back door that was almost too easy to move and sauntered in. This house was a two-story Victorian, turn-of-the-century brick with some of the original antique furniture still inside. We began to roam around the house laughing and making jokes. When I opened the door to the cellar, that's when we heard it. I want to point out that all of this was occurring in broad daylight, with the sun shining bright in the middle of the afternoon. It wasn't midnight or the typical 3 a.m. ghost hunt. At first, we heard the sounds of silverware clinking on plates, then a cacophony of voices combined with the music from a bygone era. I should also mention that there was no electricity being provided to this residence at the time. The sounds began to swell, and before long, the entire house was filled with the din of what we later thought to be a party or a ball of some kind. The three of us then proceeded to set land speed record for exiting a home during a crisis. Months later, this very same house was purchased by a wealthy writer whose name I can't mention. Well, we all know who that was, Linda Goodman. Afterwards, several parties were held there. One night during a particular ruckus evening, a young woman ran from the house screaming. Once her friends caught up with her and asked her what had happened, she told her friends that the figure of a minor had materialized by the fireplace. Others later reported seeing a distinguished-looking Victorian-era gentleman at the top of the stairs. Years later, when I was researching the eccentric inventor Nikola Tesla, I came upon an article that described how the unconventional electrical genius had conducted a number of experiments in Cripple Creek. The same writer who had purchased and was living in the house at the time confirmed it was, in fact, Tesla's residence at one time, where he had conducted experiments. Despite his prolific inventiveness and eccentric lifestyle, Tesla was known to maintain a rather high social profile. His experiments in physics also upheld the belief and possibility of life after death. Could it be Nikola Tesla himself that remains in this house? Cripple Creek is clearly full of a rich history that could lend itself to many haunts. Are these locations haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, maybe someday we'll be able to go back to Colorado and I can show you some of these old places. I'd love it. We'd love for you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email from Ro, who writes, Hi, Diane and Kelly. My name is Ro, and I just listened to your episode on the old Diplomat Hotel. Three generations of my family have lived in Baguio. Grand folks moved there around 1955. So it was nice hearing our hometown get brought up. And yes, you pronounced it correctly. Awesome. Yay. That's always fun. Yeah. <laughs> When he was alive, my grandfather was actually the doctor to go into Baguio when a body needed an autopsy or if someone needed a medical practitioner to confirm something for a criminal case. Oh. But I digress. I asked my mom about the morgue at the Diplomat Hotel, and she said she doesn't recall it ever having one. 
We're not really sure why people have started saying that. Maybe to add to the spook factor of the place. You know, we both wondered because I was like, it was kind of like a tower. So it didn't seem like it'd be a morgue. Yeah. The woman dressed in white is what we usually call a white lady. And there are stories about these apparitions all over the Philippines. I think instead of thinking hard of a way to uniquely describe a ghost, we as a nation just made white lady the umbrella term for female ghosts. There's another hotel right by the city center, which Baguio people call town, called Casa Vallejo. There are stories of guests seeing kids peeking in from the windows on the second floor. The food they serve there is really good, though. I think every one of us who grew up there has stories of hauntings, even in our own homes. I do want to point out that Ibaloy is pronounced as Ibaloy, so we said it wrong. It took me a second to figure out which tribe you were referring to. Ah, well, we try. (laughs) Also, Igorot is not a Tagalog term for anything. Igorot are Igorot, the same way the Cherokee are Cherokee. The Igorot tribe is entirely separate from the Tagalogs in the southern part of Luzon. So I'm not sure where the information that it meant mountaineer came from. When someone goes up a mountain in Tagalog, you say, Namumundok. I just thought to bring it up because it may be a touchy subject for some. There's history of Tagalogs dictating a lot in this country. For example, they declared their language the national language, and in an effort to make it seem more inclusive of other languages, they called it Filipino, saying that it borrowed words from the other native languages, and doesn't really. I hope it makes it clear how saying that an entire tribe's name comes from a Tagalog word may not be taken well. So I just responded that I could understand why that would be a bit of an issue because we have all the Native American tribes here and we tend to say in the Native American language, but each one of them had their own specific language. Yeah, definitely understandable. So if we say the Filipino language, there really isn't such a thing. It's kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. Totally get that. And I said, I find it so fascinating that every single country and culture has the lady in white or white lady phenomenon. If it weren't for so many sightings of people in period clothing or tribal wear, we'd be bummed thinking all the women were stuck wearing white in the afterlife. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) And I also said your grandfather probably has some great stories. Upon which Ro wrote back, I forgot to mention just in case this hasn't come up as a suggestion yet, Corregidor Island is a historical site that has a lot of things that go bump. It was an outpost during World War II. And we actually did do that. I cannot remember what episode number it was, but if you guys put it in Google, you will be able to find it. And then there's another place called Intramuros with a much more storied history from massacres during the Spanish colonial period to carpet bombing during World War II. And just for your amusement, because it's not so historical yet, our call center office buildings have loads of ghost stories already. People die in them so often, usually heart failure, sometimes aneurysms. So the ghost scene are usually dressed in business attire, white business attire, of course. And they're usually guys. And then she just said she looks forward to upcoming episodes. So thanks for writing, Ro. That was very fascinating. Yeah, we loved hearing background information from people that actually have firsthand experience. Exactly, because we don't know the culture that well. That's why sometimes I get tentative about doing foreign countries because I just don't know the language and I don't know the culture. But you don't want to offend yeah, anyone. you don't want to offend them. So it's like, uh, I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Minnie Laridson for your one-time donation. And welcome into the cemetery, Carrie Kelly. We're going to be burying you under a marble tombstone. And Jannie Pruitt, we're going to be placing you in a chest tomb. Thank you for supporting HGB, you guys. It really does help us out. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. There is a form of animal or, well, bug fighting in which animals don't get hurt. Cricket fighting. Bug fighting? I have some bug fighting that I do. It's called smash and run. (laughs) These crickets have pedigrees and specialized diet incorporating red beans, goat liver, shrimp, and um, 
maggots. Yummy. <laughs> Not. The night before a fight, female crickets are dropped into the clay pots that hold the crickets to invigorate their spirit. Uh, this is tough to get through. The crickets fight according to weight classes. I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> can't you see the crickets wrestling? Oh, my word. Cripple Creek got its start in 1891 when gold was discovered by a cowboy named... Named? Named? named, named. A cowboy named? Yeehaw! <laughs> I'm already getting the right accent for this one, Kelly. The town was built from wood, which would prove to be a bad idea when fire broke out in April of 1896. I had to double check that I read that number right. <laughs> yes, numbers and Kelly do not combine well. One of the largest gold mines in the country, the Portland. <clears throat> God, I'm choking. The Portland. And I promise it's not me choking her. For those of you listening to the bloopers, Great. I am Thanks. not trying to kill Kelly. By the time the mines had been run out, more than... Hang on. <laughs> hang on. Hang oh, on. Oh, my God. Kelly, brace yourself. <laughs> it's a big number. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> more than 22,400,000 ounces of gold was extracted from more than 500 mines in the Cripple Creek and Victor region. Many people have claimed to experience the same ph phenomenon. <laughs> I can never say that. <laughs> I know. It's not getting into that song. Always... Makes me stop. <laughs> I'm not going to start or we'll not end this thing. Many people have claimed to experience the same phenomenon. <laughs> you want me to read it again? No, you read it just fine, but now I can't get the song I, out of I my head. Never, yeah, same. There's a Muppet standing yeah. behind you right now. Don't turn around. <laughs> Polished hardwood floors. Hardwood? Did I say hardwood? <laughs> and a female spirit is heard laughing in the lounge. Hey, Kelly, do you think she's sitting in the lounge going, oh, tourism? <laughs> you just took my joke. <laughs> I just didn't say it into the mic. They've performed. They've performed. They've performed. <laughs> they perform very, very well. She described the man to a co-worker and he said it matched the former nail, nail jiter. Nail jiter. What's a nail jiter? <laughs> it's like, like a nail a, biter. I was just going to say it's not like a <laughs> nail biter. And move objects in the tavern. 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 In the tavern. So they asked Oster. So they asked Oster. Oster. So they asked. O so Try one more time. I can't do <laughs> asked and Oscar together. That is kind of hard. You try doing it. Asked Oscar. All right. So they asked Oster. Oh God, I can't. <laughs> why I can't do it? Almost sounded like you said asked. <laughs> so they asked, asked. So they asked Oscar Lampman to partner with them. 